Greetings and welcome in for mile 20 of the Seconds Flat Running podcast presented to you as always by Run In. I am Travis alongside Benjamin. Benny, how are you? Man, I am relieved. Today was my last day of college. I crammed four years into five and a half and I am so happy to be out. He is a college graduate. He entered into an institution of higher learning sometime in the early 2000s (laughs) and emerges just before Christmas 2018. As a slightly decrepit butterfly. And what degree are you carrying now? I have my bachelor's of science in marketing. A true scientist. Wonderful. I am fresh off a trip to California that we will get into later. There is more to come on that. Let's talk about the front of the pack in the race that I was in, the U.S. Marathon Championships at California International Marathon from Folsom to Sacramento, California last Sunday morning. What a perfect day to race. The weather was unbeatable, and I have been in nothing but bad weather races recently, so it was a much welcome reprieve, and it sure went well for Brogan Austin our U.S. men's champion in 2-12-38. Probably not a lot of people saw the coverage because you had to have the USATF Plus package. I didn't get to see much either because I was somewhere chasing after Brogan. He surged to the lead in the final half mile, pressed the pace below five minutes over the last four to get the win. He is coming off of a 16, excuse me, a 62-39 half marathon when he won at Indianapolis beginning of November and um, maybe his claim to fame is the coaching legacy right Benny yeah absolutely Uh, as you listeners know we're a big fan of the Tin Man Elite Group coached by Tom Tin Man Schwartz and he is showing his ability to coach the longer events as well here with Brogan Brogan started uh, working with him last fall, I believe, uh-huh. yep. and gave him a checklist of things he wanted to do. He wanted to break 215 in the marathon, 63 in the half, and go under 4820 for 10 miles. He's done all of that under yeah. Tom. Check, check, and check there. Schwartz has long been a marathon coach, but he's had more success with mid-distance type runners uh, in, in recent past. But that's a heck of a performance. One of thing one of the things Austin said post race in the interview was that through college at Drake, he still lives in Des Moines, Iowa. He was probably a bit overtrained, and if anything, he maybe came into this race a bit undertrained. I think he said that that Coach Schwartz predicted he could run even possibly under two eleven. Came pretty close. Made the move when he needed to. He was in a chase pack for a long time, and then just really put the pedal to the metal down the stretch and got a win. A few other guys who were in the mix who we were excited about. We mentioned last time Joe Stillen from Zap Fitness. He debuted with a fourth place finish in a great race to get his Olympic trial qualifier standard. And another favorite of ours, Brian Schrader in sixth in 213.38. Yeah, the Northern Arizona Lumberjack alum. Former Jack Schrader with a great race. He's had a circuitous path to get him to this point. The expectations were certainly high for him. I am pretty sure he left college a year early to go pro. Yeah, he had ran the U.S. 12K championship and set a U.S. record, and it was just so much money, it just made sense for him to go ahead and go pro. Take the cash while you can. He has 
maybe come full circle now with a great race at CIM. But I think the biggest story at CIM was in the women's race. Man, talk about a debut. Absolutely. Former NCAA 10K track champion Emma Bates goes 228.18 for the win. The seventh fastest U.S. women's marathon debut ever. So, Emma Bates, Olympic potential? What do you think? Absolutely. It's hard to deny that performance. I mean, she's entered the conversation. She's been proven on the track. She struggled a little bit with being in a training group that didn't work well for her. Mm -hmm. But it seems since working with her boyfriend as her coach, uh, she's really coming full circle as a long-distance runner who she had the potential to be while at Boise State. We just added another woman to the crazy deep 2020 U.S. women's marathon field. Emma Bates, who went to Boston, trained with the BAA High Performance Group, It just wasn't the right fit for her. She becomes kind of like the working man's hero now in the woods in Boise, Idaho, training in this living in a cabin without running water and this whole story. I don't think she even has electricity. And she's convinced some people to come run with her, and they're having great success too. What a fun story for Emma. She led wire to wire. She went out and pushed this thing. Unsponsored runner. She is... In the race pictures, you can see it if you get on the website. In a singlet uh, asking for support for the fire victims in Northern California. Just an all-around great story. Emma Bates is your winner. Another great story was the runner-up, Stephanie Bruce. Yes, I was about to mention that. Second place in 229.30, which on its own is a great race. Which, four weeks? That's the real story. One month after her performance in New York City. What a way to double back for Bruce with that performance. She and her coach Ben Rosario said they took a week off after New York. Then there was some easy running. He said he could tell pretty quickly she was ready to go at it again. And so Bruce represents that NAZ elite group in Flagstaff that has had some really great success recently with another fantastic performance. Also on that day, we had two other really high-profile marathons, kind of the last weekend of big marathoning for 2018 if we go international. We had an incredible field at Valencia in Spain, which, what a year to run in Valencia, right? The half-marathon champs there. I mean, it's been some really amazing performances. We had um, Ethiopians in both the men's and women's race set new Spanish all-comers records. Add to that, you had eight men go below 206.30 in that men's marathon, which has only happened once before in world marathoning history. Also, on the other side of the globe, in Japan at the legendary race at Fukuoka, we had a Japanese winner this year to continue the Japanese success. Yuma Hattori goes 207.27 to claim victory on the home turf. Uh, He is the fifth Japanese man this year to go below two hours and eight minutes. In the United States, we have had this year exactly one sub-208 U.S. marathoner, Galen Rupp. To the Japanese distance community, I say good on you. Way to raise the bar. Their approach to strengthening Japanese marathoning, which is is traditionally very strong they have a great distance culture and they love the sport was they decided in preparation for hosting tokyo olympics 2020 they would one 
make the standards tougher for people to get into their trials. And two, they'd put that bounty for the national record with a, a private business interests offering money up every time that national marathon record gets broken. They have pushed to make it tougher, assuming that if they strengthen their standards, Japanese runners will rise to the occasion and meet expectations. And I think so far it's been a huge success. To some degree, it reminds me of a little bit of what's going to happen in Boston in the coming years, right? Mm. Boston just lowered their numbers you need. So, for example, if you're in the male open age group to qualify, it used to be a 305 target number, and then you'd have to go a little faster because of the number of people who would hit it. They've strengthened that. They've made it a three-hour number. In my opinion, generally, this is great for the sport because what I think will happen is... As the bar is raised, expectations are raised. American runners, international runners will meet those goals. We will push harder. Three hours will become the target and we'll make it believable, attainable, and achievable. Japan has done that on an even larger scale. And I think it's going to be great for their performance in Tokyo at the Olympics in 2020. Another story we want to hit a little more before coming back to marathons from last week with my experience is the opening of NCAA indoor track season, and one race in particular stuck out to me. Gosh, that 5,000 at Boston University. Whew, mommy, mommy. Women's 5,000 at BU this past weekend, we had four ladies, incredible performances, all between 15-14 and 15-16. So at the front, you had New Mexico's Edna Kurgat and Wayne Kalati go 15-14, 15-15. Right behind them, Sharon Locati of Kansas, 15-15, and your girl, Ali Ostrander from Boise, 15-16. Let's put that in perspective for the listeners. The indoor NCAA record for women is 15-12 by Emily Sisson. So we already came within two seconds of that number. What really excites me about this race is Ali Ostrander's performance. The time, 15-16, makes her the third fastest American-born NCAA athlete in the 5,000. Ooh. And she actually, with that number moved past last year's fastest indoor 5,000, also by an American. Who might that have been? Carissa Schweitzer. Yeah. And do you know what the fastest time indoor last year was in the 5,000? In the world? Or no, no. NCAA. NCAA. 15.22? A little faster. 15.17. It was a good wow. guess. So with that, we had four women in the opener at BU run faster than anyone did last year. Schweitzer, decorated national champion. That's no joke, right? The numbers that she's putting up. And we already saw those numbers broken at BU this weekend. I'd also tie this back with Emily Sisson, the record holder, in a race that happened since we last spoke to the listeners. She was at the legendary Manchester Road Race on Thanksgiving morning. She has won there in the past. She was third there this year in a really good race, only behind two runners of international class. But in single-digit wind chills, we get a course record in the men's race. King Chez, Ed Cheserick, goes 21-16 for approximately 4.75 miles. It's kind of an odd distance that they race there. 
He beats Paul Chalimo by 30 seconds. Benji, what does Chez do in 2019 and beyond? That is a very difficult question due to the issues regarding his citizenship. Mm -hmm. Um, For our listeners who don't know, Chez was born in Kenya and attended primary school there before coming to St. Benedict's High School in New Jersey, where he lived at this boarding school, attended American High School, went off and had a decorated career at Oregon, and he has since applied for citizenship here in the States. Since he is not a citizen, he still has the capability to represent Kenya, even while going through this process, but he's said several times that he doesn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. He wants to wait until he is an American citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think his future is kind of contingent on that yep. as far as what races he does. I think this does give him an opportunity to do what he did last indoor season and chase these really fast times. Yeah, He doesn't have pressure to win these championship races necessarily. There's a little bit more freedom when you don't have to represent your country. There is some beauty to that for him because he didn't have to run championship-style races Mm -hmm. last year, which anyone who watched him in college knows that was what he was known for. That's why he's King Chess. Yes. He won all these races because he could sit and kick and defeat anyone at that level. But then last year, we got a taste of him in the Indoor Mile, for example, 349... Yeah, 349. Uh, Hi, I can't remember the exact number. He is, to some degree, a man in limbo, a man without a country for the World Championships in 2019. He may potentially have an opportunity off the track, though, where he could shine. Which would be the World Cross Country Championships. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chez, if he elects, would have the opportunity due to this citizenship conflict going on. Uh, He could run unattached and not represent a country at these championships. The founders of Let's Run.com wrote this super long article on it. You can go check out, urging Chez to do this. He was known in college as the king of the grass. Mm. You can't be the king of something unless you fight the best in your realm, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to see him take it head-to-head with the world's best. Yeah, I think that could be a fun opportunity and add some drama to cross-country, which on, on that professional elite world stage would be fun to see because it's just not really the draw that track is for most folks. There's the thought of what does this mean for him against Chalimo, right? Where do those two stack up? I suspect the weather is an important variable here, considering just how freaking cold it was in Manchester on Thanksgiving morning. But I think he could be of the class for 5,000 meters on the Olympic stage in a year and a half to two years from now. I think we're going to see him in the Olympics. I don't think we're going to see him at the World Championships this year. That seems like a stretch. But there's a really good chance you might get to see him at the Olympics, and I really hope we do because he could be a contender. Now, caveats are, one, most importantly, stay healthy because we saw glimpses last year, and then, boom, next thing you know, he's disappearing. But if you could keep him healthy and he continues to grow – and the citizenship issue gets settled, King Chez might be making his mark at the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. Also, I think while we're talking about track season and track potential, it's worth noting at the JDL Complex in Mm Winston-Salem on Sunday evening, they hosted a super fast women's 5,000 meter race in which we saw Ellie Hennes of NC State set a new school record. We saw Emma Grace Hurley of Furman 
become a sub-16 runner, yep. making the third sub-16 runner at Furman in the last three years. And then we also saw Wofford's Hannah Steelman break 16 for the first time. What a weekend for women running the 5,000. Look at the depth this presents on the national stage going forward. We could have some really fun races moving on, but great performances in both those locations. Yeah, I can remember speaking to the depth years while I was in college that girls who didn't break 16 got into nationals. Yeah. We're so deep that that's not good enough anymore. It, I don't think it's happening this year with yeah. these fields. And to tie back into CIM, incredible performances with the depth there of the number of people who put up Olympic trial qualifying marks there to reach the standard. Uh, Men at the sub-219, women at the sub-245 marathon marks. What people were running back in like 100th place in this race rivals anything we have seen from a marathon in history. So incredible performances from American men and women there. And so I guess we're going to get into a little bit of what it was like to run that morning in California. So we're going to kind of flip the script here a little bit, and uh, Benji's going to ask more of the questions, and I guess I'm on the hot seat now. So Benjamin, fire away, big fella. Yes, sir. Well, the listeners love listening to your smooth, jazzy voice while Mm. they run. Mm. Uh, So let's hear a little about your running. Okay. All right. California International Marathon. You put up what as your time this weekend? I ran a 2.41.50, so that is a PR. And how much of a PR is that? That was a few minutes better than I've been before. A Um, a few? Yeah. For some context here, obviously it doesn't put me on the elite scale of what we (laughs) saw at the front of this race that was just so incredible. But I, I would say while I've run marathons for a number of years... I don't think I've trained very seriously for them at the level I'm training now, really until the last two years. So I've had a big jump in times. Initially, when I started running the marathon, it was, okay, I'd like to run a marathon. Let's finish it, do the basic training to get there. And then it became, well, I'd really want to run Boston. So let's do enough to try to make it to Boston. And when I broke through that to get to Boston, um, it was one of my early, one of my first marathons. It, it was really cool to to get to go do it. I went there on a, the first time I went. The heat was crazy, and it wasn't a great race. And really took a, a long time after that before I got into another marathon. And so it wasn't until uh, about two years ago that I really started to focus some training and, and see the time drop. And so I ran earlier this year at Boston in just crazy bad conditions after some really good training. And so I was like seven minutes slower than what I did this weekend. I think effort-wise, that race in Boston might have been just as good given the weather. And that was the biggest difference between these two days. And there's discussion of the courses and some of the downhill at, at CIM. It's a lot of rolling hills. I think the biggest benefits there are really not so much the course, but one, the perfect weather, and you tend to get a good opportunity at weather there. And then two, with it being the U.S. champs, the number of good runners, both men and women, who are there to help push through the race. So let's just get into the bones of it. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, The race was this Sunday? Sunday morning, 7 a.m. Pacific time gun. So what day did you leave for there? Who went with you, and what did you bring? 
Oh, okay. I left on Thursday morning very early. I got out there a little bit earlier than I might normally. Uh, wanted to try in some way to adjust to the time change with the three-hour difference. Honestly, I don't think I ever did. Mm. But getting up early, traveling west, it's not that big of a deal. I'd rather go that way and be up early and go to sleep earlier because I want to get up early on race day anyway. Right. I had my mother, Jani Rue, was on board. Good woman. Uh, Yes, fine woman. She actually flew out to join me, so we had separate flights that we met in Dallas and then flew together to California, which was fun. Had a great trip together, ate a lot, uh, especially after the race. There is a bakery in Folsom, California that will be paying its mortgage solely based on how much money my mother spent on sweets this weekend. Uh, She got after it pretty hard. Yeah, she... She put in a good effort this weekend, too, so (laughs) she had to reward herself. And um, I kept the packing pretty light, just a carry-on with some clothes, some sweats, my race stuff. And then in my bags, my small bag that I had with me on the plane, I had just the very specific, like, my book, some snacks, some food for during the race, my race nutrition, my race shoes, all the stuff that I wanted as close to my body as possible because I did not want to lose it on the way there. Right. So you arrived Thursday evening? Yes. Yeah, so with the time change, you get all those hours back. So it was actually early afternoon on oh, Thursday. Awesome. So we landed. It was raining pretty good when we landed in Sacramento. And then I stayed near the start line in Folsom. Folsom's a really cool kind of old west town. And it's got that old, like, gold rush feel to it. They actually were doing a commemorative thing for the Pony Express while we were there, which was really neat. And I've always been into to history, so I had a lot of fun with that stuff. And I like staying there to uh, kind of get away from some of the crowd. There's a great bike path and dirt path right by where I stayed along the American River there that goes for miles and miles. So you could stretch that thing all the way to downtown Sacramento if you wanted to, or the opposite direction. You could head northwest out past the dam and the prison and and the lake there in Folsom and take it all the way up toward where uh, the Western States 100 ends up in Auburn. Could have crossed right over that path there too. So gave me plenty of good places to run. So I actually got out. Once we got checked in, it was maybe still like three o'clock and had plenty of light. At that point, we were down to like a light drizzle. And I got out and got a run maybe five or so miles right away just to loosen up my legs from the flight. And first great sign of the trip was went through the flights, got out, got a run and felt really fresh, a little frisky, (laughs) felt like I could turn over a little bit. Fantastic. You're speaking to the run on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did running look like for you Friday, Saturday leading up to the race? Yeah, so I, had, I, I ran each day, and that's a very personal decision. I am not one really to take off the day before a race. If I'm going to take off ever before a race for people, I tend to recommend, if you've been running a lot, maybe two days out, and then run again the day before just to kind of shake off the cobwebs. I ran different directions on that trail and adjacent trails to it on those days. I hadn't taken a day off in in weeks. It had probably been a month or so since I had been off, and I was feeling really good and things were going well, so I saw no reason to change the routine. My idea was if it had been working, don't mess with it. Just try to freshen up and cut the mileage back a little bit. So I trimmed it back, and, and my whole goal through the week was each day got just a touch shorter than the one before. I ended up with like five and a half or so to six on Thursday when we got there. Uh, Then on Friday, it was 
close to five. Saturday, it was a little shorter. I think it was maybe four. On both Thursday and Saturday, I ended with some strides in the parking lot, working from kind of what I thought was going to be marathon pace. I went into this thinking like 245 is a pretty safe, realistic goal that I can do. So I tried to calculate some training and then also what I did in the last days, like those strides based on those paces, and then tried to dial the strides up just a little bit faster with each one. So I have some kind of quick questions. Hit me. If you feel like you want to elaborate on it, feel free to. Love to. Um, But we don't necessarily have to spend a whole lot of time here if you don't want to. Cool. Pre-race meal the night before. The night before went to a really nice Italian place. Actually, it was a good day of eating all around. The place where I stayed had really good breakfast. So I went with um, some advice that we reiterated in our episode where we had some nutrition, sports nutrition talk with Coach Marnie Sumbal a few episodes ago. I went with the breakfast as the largest meal of the day. I ran before breakfast uh, those days leading up to the race, just as I always do here. And so my typical go-to after a run is eggs. So they had scrambled eggs uh, on their uh, breakfast menu there. And I had uh, some fruit and some French toast also for some carbs and because it's like my absolute favorite in the morning. So I did that. I kept it light at lunch and I had a smoothie and, and some like uh, some pretzels, some stuff with some salt in it and some carbs and kept the meals pretty light and not too far apart and then went to dinner for Italian and had just some bread, some pasta with a marinara sauce, and then it, it was um, like a meat sauce in there too, because I do like a little bit of protein the night before, but something that I'm very familiar with. Yeah, and I think it's important for our listeners listeners to know is that this isn't fact in the way that it works for every single person. It is important to go with what you know. Don't switch it up just because you read somewhere that pasta the night before a race makes you run faster. Yeah, and if anything, I would say that for a lot of folks... Uh, one, stuff that's happening before the last day is as or more important. And two, there's plenty of food you could go to that is not pasta that's great the night before that you can get carbs, like a white rice, for example. Mm. A few nights out, I think it was the first night we got there, we actually went to a Thai restaurant. And most of what I ate was a lot of vegetables, but it had white rice with it, which is something I'm really comfortable with. I tend to stay away from a lot of greens the night before, a lot of high fiber stuff. I kind of cut that for that night. A lot of people get away from dairy. I I will admit one of my many flaws is my love of all things cheese. So sometimes I'll have some some dairy just uh, you know maybe it's a, a slice of pizza with a little bit of cheese on it the night before but I didn't do that this time and for me that's been honed over a lot of time with racing here where through experience I know what I'm comfortable with eating beforehand awesome so starting from your head down yes walk me through what you were wearing during the race yes Saucony freedom cap real lightweight breathable moisture wicking cap uh, that's more like baseball cap style with a with a bill it was a sunny morning and so i like to keep the sun out of my eyes Mm. there were a lot of people with a more winter hat style but it wasn't super cold i mean it was cold at the start i think i would have thrown that off had i worn it throughout the race i had a a warmer hat on for warm-ups but i went to that lightweight cap Wore the seconds flat singlet. As every good man does. Absolutely. So I guess that's a marathon PR for the singlet (laughs) in the gray. 
Uh, also had some Saucony shorts that I like a lot, and they have some small pockets that made it easy to access some nutrition. In Jinji wool toe socks. I found Ooh. out in my first marathon, uh, my second and third toe on my right foot kind of rub up together. And so I found that when I went with the toe socks, it separated those and I didn't have any blistering. It's definitely something you have to get used to. A lot of people are uncomfortable with that feeling, but I've really come to like it and they're real lightweight and breathable. And uh, went with first race with the Nike Vaporfly 4%. The old, the original version, the mesh version, version, not the new one with the the knit on top, which I like the shoe a lot. I don't think I left feeling like oh, it's some magic shoe. Really, but I did leave feeling like I was I was able to run well in it and run to the extent that my training would have allowed. I probably could have done that in some other shoes too, I, and I've run good races in others. But I just wanted to try something different. Walk us through the warm up. I always get up really early for a little shakeout. I had the alarm set for 4, and I woke up at 3.48 and oh felt like, you know what, I'm pretty much ready to go. But heck, when you're screwed up on the time change and you're going to bed at like 8 or 9, it's not that bad to get up so early. So I actually go to sleep the night before in a pair of shorts and a shirt that I can immediately run in when I wake up. Threw a couple layers on top of those, went out, just jogged around easy in downtown Folsom, on this road that was closed but they had just paved it so it had this really nice pavement on it for like five or six minutes and i crossed paths with one other guy who was out doing that just like to kind of get the system going wake up be ready to go went back showered got the kit on and then threw on some warm-up layers over top of that some stuff that i would later check in um, and others that i would just throw off at the last minute close to the start but i went ahead and rode the bus to the start so that I could just kind of stay off my feet and be warm. And when I got there, they had an actual tent, warming tent set aside for people from my uh, hotel. So I stayed there for another 15 minutes. And then at about 6.15, went out for a short little jog in a cul-de-sac around a neighborhood, just maybe three minutes at the most. I figured I'm going to be on my feet for a long time. I don't need too much here, but I wanted enough so that I could do some drills and a couple strides to feel ready to go. Peeled off a few layers, changed the shoes, went to the start, and then right before the gun, threw out a couple layers that I was just tossing that I wasn't going to need anymore. And next thing you know, it's showtime. Really cool. One of the last people they interviewed before the gun was the great Jerry Lawson, who was one of America's best marathoners in the kind of late 80, early 90s time frame. Still the course record holder out there, 210-something, and um, he was running again for the 25th anniversary of his course record. Wow. So that was fun to hear him. And I got kind of hyped, and these people around me were like, I don't know who Jerry Lawson is, but it got me fired up. So (laughs) yeah, That's the joy of being a nerd. Yeah, that's right. It was something that I loved. All right. So it was time to go. Gun goes off. Yes. Clothes are off. All of them. Oh, well, (laughs) I guess that's efficient. You walk me through your race experience based on what I hear and some questions I've written down. I'll add on after. Please interject at any moment. Biggest thing is it felt a bit surreal. This whole buildup felt a bit surreal to me. As we've mentioned on here before, I had to take a long amount of time off after an allergic reaction and the recovery took weeks and weeks where I just couldn't run. 
at that point, I decided I really wanted to go to CIM because at this time last year when I prepped for a marathon, I had come down with bronchitis and I rarely get sick and it was just terrible timing. So it kind of was like this end of the year redemption story for me. But everything seemed to pass so much more quickly than I'm used to in a marathon buildup. Like the days flew by. Maybe that's just part of getting older. I don't know. But time was passing so quickly. And for a large measure, the workouts were really spot on where I wanted to be. Maybe only two or three times did I not feel like, oh, I really nailed what I wanted on that day. And as we got closer, I kept thinking, "Ah, I'm really excited. I can't wait to get there. And it just happened so quickly. That first mile there is a pretty precipitous downhill. And you really have to stay under control. You know, this course has drops and climbs both. But one of the biggest drops is right out of the gate. And then you have a sharp turn and up a brief hill to mile one. I knew I wanted to stay under control, and I watched a lot of people blow past me. And so when I look back online at my splits, I see how many places I gained between that first split and the last one. It was hundreds of spots that I gained back. At that point, I kind of had come in with a plan of the first 5K on about the pace that I ran at Boston for the entirety of the race, my average pace there. Because I thought where I am in my training now, that will feel comfortable. It won't be too much of a push. And I can drop down from there. And that's about what I did. I actually ran just a little bit faster than that. But That seemed to be the trend for your day. Yes, that would become a trend that I kept going a little faster than I thought I was. But it was nothing that banged my quads up coming down the hill. I felt really comfortable with it. And my goal was after that 5K to just kind of lock into marathon effort, marathon rhythm. That was what I kept repeating to myself for long stretches. Just find marathon effort. Just find a rhythm here. Don't worry about the splits. Know that this feels like what it should feel like to run a marathon. Know that you could accelerate if needed at any time. That speaks so highly to your wisdom with the event and experience with it that you are looking for that effort rather than the pace because how well you ran, you would have been limiting yourself if you said, I had to hit this pace. Yes. Uh, You would have freaked out when you saw the numbers you were running that you had. Uh, That's that's true, man. I think that pace, there could have been a problem for me in two different directions. One, if you set a pace you want – at a lot of marathons early on and you force yourself to hit it without regard for the changing terrain, you might push yourself too hard. And in my opinion, the number one worst mistake you can make in a marathon is the too fast, too early mistake. Uh, I've heard many a wise man say, don't bank time, bank energy. If you have a course that is beneficial early on, don't bank time, bank energy. And it's funny because I listened to another podcast that I like beforehand from uh, Running Rogue. Uh, those guys are in Austin. They brought a huge group, a couple hundred runners with them to run CIM from all their training groups and friends and everything. And so they did a little bit of a course preview. And the host actually mentioned that exact phrase. And so it resonated with me. It also can limit you the other way, saying, as you did, you could get scared by a time. Am I going too fast? Well, but if the rhythm's right, it should feel early in a marathon very easy. 
Yes. You have to say to yourself, is this something I could run 10 miles from now? And I use that a lot in thinking, okay, if I doubled my mile where I am right now, would this still feel comfortable? If I feel like this when I get to that point, is this a good sign? And I tried to keep that in mind. But generally, I just reflected on rhythm, effort. I'm going to give back a few seconds on an uphill. I'm going to take a few seconds on a downhill. So that first 5K came down a little bit. The second 5K from, from 5 to 10, they had split mats at each 5K. So all that data gets uploaded. That was where I decided beforehand that I would split my watch. So I had the watch on manual splits. I did not, and I never have my watch auto lapping at a mile because to me, what my watch says doesn't matter. What the course says on the distance is what matters. So I used some 5K cues, knowing what kind of times and efforts I thought I would be around. And I got through 10K and I thought, ooh, that's, um, that might be a little quick but it feels really good. I knew from 10 to 15K, I'm gonna get a little bit more uphill. Uh, Mile nine is a net uphill mile. And so I wasn't surprised that that was actually the only 5K where I drew back a little bit on time, but it was still faster than my first one, so my overall pace is still going negative here. It's funny because our friend Kyle, who was on the trail talk episode, he stopped by earlier to talk to us about it. And and he said he went out on a run that morning and he was following me through 10K and saw the splits and thought, "Uh uh-oh, is it going to be a little too fast? Can he hang on? Because he had a general idea of what kind of time I was targeting. It was at about that 15K mark where I ran into the 245 pacer. So they have an unofficial pace group with a bib, a guy who's pacing 245, largely for women who are shooting for that number so that they can make the trials, right? They, they want their standard to go to Atlanta 2020 for the Olympic trials. Yeah, so what's your mentality? This is your goal. There's a big banner. That's your goal. I personally feel like I'd almost be hesitant, like, okay, I'm going to chill here. I'm going to feel good as long as possible. What was your mentality when you saw the signs? I had two thoughts that immediately came to mind. One was, I'm perhaps faster and in better shape than I expected. The second was, did I just fall into a trap too early into this thing? Because I knew coming in, I wanted to find that group at some point and then try to push past them. But I thought it might be more halfway yeah, that's what you to a little me. later. Yeah. yeah. And I right, we talked about it when Kyle and I ran kind of a marathon simulation in the week before, I told him the same. You know, he said, are you going to hit that group like by 10 miles maybe? And which is really close to what ended up happening. And I told him, I hope not. I hope that seems too early to me. So when I got there, I stuck with him for a little while and just kind of used him. And I thought to myself, this feels too easy. I think they were pacing to get close to even to maybe a little negative in their split, and uh, which is kind of what I had approached it as well. But it just felt a little too easy. I felt good. I thought, I'm just going to roll from them a little bit and see what happens. I actually dropped back down then in, in that 10 to 15K spot, and I'm feeling really good. I've slowed down a little bit, but out of 15K... I picked it up a little bit again as I moved past them. And you get an uphill, a couple uphills, but a very big downhill in that next section. Got my first nutrition stop there around 10 miles. 
Uh, I actually had my mom waiting. She had a, a bottle of Tailwind that I sipped on for a couple miles. Where'd you store it? I actually just held on to that after she gave it to me. I took the hand off from her, which good thing I'm not an elite because that would be illegal. I think we were a little outside of a aid zone when she gave it to me, okay. but nobody cares what I do. So it was fine. That is true. You rebel. So I took that, sipped on it for a while. Lesson learned here, filled it up too much. Uh, I maybe was overzealous. You can only consume so much liquid and I don't want to carry this thing forever. So I probably put about twice as much as I needed in there. But it's better to be safe rather than sorry. That's right. So So with that said, next time if I were to do a similar approach in nutrition, I might go to three-fourths of what I had in there. I'd rather have too much than too little. You're right. And we went down the big big downhill, and then there's a pretty good up coming out of it that's probably about half as big. Going down into it, a guy said to me, did we just pass the, the biggest hill? And I said, no, there's there's a good hill before this before this downhill, but you got another one, you're coming up, that's going to be the big one. And I came out of it and up that hill, and I thought to myself, that felt really easy. You know, the breathing didn't increase any of that kind of stuff. So now we get to what, in my opinion, is the most mentally taxing portion of the course. All those rollers kind of break it up mentally. We're coming out from like 12 through the midpoint on towards maybe 15 now. I wanted to just lock in on the effort and really just what was happening in front of me and stay really mentally engaged there. It's also like the least scenic part of the course too. So the course was fantastic this year because the foliage was so bright, all this yellow and orange and red. And this is the one point in the course where you don't really have any of that. It's wide open. It's kind of empty. You're surrounded by some strip malls. It's probably the flattest part of the course, so there's not much up or down. And I benefited here where right after the half, and I came through half in 121.47. And I thought to myself, I could go even from here. This seems realistic. I could run 244. Is this when you realized you were going to break 245? I thought at that point, assuming there's no disaster, which can always happen late in a marathon. Definitely. I'm going below 245. Yes, awesome. it, it's happening. So were you getting excited when you realized this? Or uh, I tried cautious? not to. I tried to reset and say marathon rhythm, marathon effort, marathon rhythm, and let's wait and go at the right moment and try to get even a little bit more out of this. And this is where it was perfect. I, I locked on to a group of women who were maybe six, eight ladies pushing for that 245 mark, rolled with them for a little while, they were conversational. It was uh, it was nice. It was great to hear them going back and forth. But I felt like they were not mentally where I needed to be at that segment segment of the race. I knew this is where I needed to really be dialed in. So I went ahead and made a move around them and just tried to be really positive with them as I went by and encouraged them. And I was happy to see when I looked at the times, actually a couple girls in that group were among the last to hit the qualifying standards. So wow. that was cool. I pretty quickly got on another group there that I was able to hang in with that I liked their pace and I tucked in behind them with a couple other guys for a little bit and then I knew I had more. I decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and I took a Morton Gel 100 at that point because a water station was coming up. So was a little nutrition. Gel? So this is my first gel. I had used the, the tailwind, liquid right. tailwind before. I'm between mile 14 and 15 now. And then coming out of that aid station, 
I went around them, gave them some some encouragement. I said, ladies, you're going to do it. You're going to Atlanta. Then offered up, can I do anything to help you? You want to tuck in behind me for a minute? What can I do for you? There were some smiles, just a few quick words, and the general consensus was I was accelerating even if I didn't realize it in a way that was too much too early for them. So while I felt like effort rhythm is dead on where I want to be, I was picking up a little bit, and they weren't ready to make that move. So when I go back and look at that split, 15 to 20K, 20 to 25K, now I'm dropping down and I'm running below 610. Now you're looking at like 243 pace or something like that, right? I'm, I'm right. well under 245 pace. I actually then benefited from a short, like a, a, I shouldn't say short, but a, a really gradual descent between 16 and 18. And you get into um, one of the real nice, like leafier enclaves of Sacramento. You get in the shade, and there's plenty of room. Uh, the road gets wide. You can take some tangents. It started to open up a little bit. And I fell in behind a third group of women who had, uh, when I got in with them, said that their goal was they were looking at under 243. And I felt really good with them and kind of did the same thing ran with them a little bit. Uh, they were starting to. to fray a little bit and break up and they were really encouraging each other which was awesome and so when I got around them I kind of gave them the same thing I just said ladies you look awesome you're all going to get that standard you can do it they were great you know back to me saying how, how great I looked which is really cool one of those ladies actually then surged from that group and she and I went back and forth over a number of <laughs> miles later on that like I wouldn't see her for a mile and the next thing you know she's blowing by me and she made a really hard push late maybe like 22 23 and then I caught back up to her later on there was one last small group that was pretty far off. It was a mix of, of men and some of those top women that was way off in the distance that was at, at least, I'm going to guess as far as I could see that they were 300 meters ahead of me, oh, wow. at, at least 200 meters. And I kind of used them visually to try to push onto. And for the most part, honestly, I thought I'm not going to catch them, but I did eventually make a move up to them real late in the race. That's exciting. Yeah, it was cool. You get a last uh, uphill 18 or so that's sizable, and then you get a little one on the bridge across the river around 21, and then you're rolling on flat. And my goal was to come off the bridge and to make a move. But with that said, I kind of had already made a bit of a move because now I'm splitting down at like 6.05, coming through 20 plus miles. And so I decided just let's do marathon rhythm, marathon effort, just stay there as long as possible because it's already faster than you thought it was going to be. So really my last push was maybe 25 or so. I tried to just have whatever I had left. Um, stomach started to feel a little uncomfortable. Couldn't really turn over much. If you look at me in the uh, finishing videos, that's it's pretty flat. Uh, there's not a lot of pickup there. But I was down around six-minute pace by that point. When I closed, I got to about 25 and a half. I realized, okay, below 242 is really likely now. If I don't blow it, I can go below 242. And that was one of the things that kept me focused to not just coast into the end, but even though I felt bad, to push a little bit more. That's awesome. So you're talking about dropping it down. What I'm interested in, which is kind of a stat, mm -hmm. 
uh, what was your slowest mile of the race or that you saw? Mm-hmm. And then what was the fastest? I believe my slowest mile would have been the first mile. I think it was somewhere in the 625 range. And then my fastest would have been at right about six, maybe a touch under. But again, I was splitting stuff more on 5Ks right. and not thinking right. about it. The numbers would suggest maybe in that high 550s at some point, which uh, it's, that's really all I could ask for based on the type of work I did in preparation. Right. Now, with that said, I did split my watch at the first timing mat as I finished and realized I had accidentally split it and not stopped it. So I stopped it after the second mat. And if you look back at that, like two seconds on my phone, it would suggest I was running at 325 pace for two seconds. So scooting a little bit there at the end coming through, but I looked awful. Now, I would say somewhere around six. Speak to that fast split bit. Mm -hmm. You PR'd in the half marathon this race. Right. So I don't really ever run half marathons to try to race them i i have in the past but not recently since i've been more serious so i uh, typically use them more as an effort where i'll get out and try to run marathon pace for a certain number of miles and then maybe go somewhere so yeah i think i ended up on the back half of this because i had like a two minute negative split i think i ran a few seconds faster than i've actually run in a half marathon which i haven't run one in like a year but yeah that was kind of wild so now the next goal is maybe a bit of a half marathon training cycle to see what i can actually do there so to speak you had a awesome day Mm -hmm. an ideal day but could you speak to a couple of things that maybe don't go always ideal for people, such as like cramping and then chafing as well? Did yes. you experience either of that? Okay, so chafing, I was pretty good, except there was a little bit of nip action. I didn't realize <laughs> it during the race, but when I took the jersey off afterwards, I did. It's like, oh yeah, rubbed a, a little nice raw shower. here across the chest. Uh, no cramping issues, you know, some muscular, some tightness around the hips late as to be expected. I do think some of the up and down maybe helps you not get as much of that because you're not firing the same muscles the whole way. Mm. No, it's not just quads. It's not just glutes. It's a little bit of everything going on. I did have a, a nutrition issue in that I dropped one of my gels, which I did the same thing at Boston. And there it was because my hands were frozen and it was wet. Here it was just kind of a clumsy. I pulled two out unknowingly oh, and no. dropped it. And I always pack an extra. I wasn't going back for it. This was my, I took, I mentioned I took one at 14 or 15. I took another one at about 19 or 20. And at that point I knew I wasn't going to need anything more beyond that. Otherwise, I would say on race day, I'm not sure I could have done much more. I, I don't know that I could have run any faster. Maybe the beginning was a little too cautious, but I don't think so based on how it played out. I think if I'm going to be faster, it's more about training better. So with a conversation with you and Clarence the 18th, <laughs> I heard the term triple stripple. <laughs> Could you speak to this? Okay. So Kugler likes to uh, throw on the old Galen Rupp breathe right strip to race in. And I've done it before, but then it gets sweaty and the thing's just falling off. And so it's kind of a joke. And I told him that I was going to double strip it and put two of them on. And then it became the triple stripple that I was just going to throw all the way up my nose. I, I have, I've broken my nose so many times it's it's becoming countless uh so i have real breathing issues through my nose so sometimes to make sure during the training cycle when i need a ton of sleep that i can get a little extra and make sure i breathe well i put the strip on at night to help myself breathe i I didn't actually go triple stripple in the race there was there was no breathe right strip 
Sorry to the good people at Breathe Right. If you'd like to sponsor me in the future, I will wear your product while I race. There you go. The mm, plug. That's an opportunity. So you cross the line. You I sign did. the autographs. You kiss the babies. Yes, I did. What is the first thing you're consuming? Oh, good one. I got a little bit of water right away. They handed me a banana, which I didn't want, but I figured I would want. But actually what they had that I really liked is uh, I didn't feel like I needed anything right away. My stomach was kind of uneasy, but I wasn't super hungry. As soon as I got the little jacket thing on to warm up and they gave me the medal and I, I found my mom who was right near the finish line and got some good pics and video. And then they had, uh, I think it was Whole Foods. Thank you, Whole Foods. They uh, had some soup warm soup in little cups it was like a chicken soup and it was actually perfect i thought for this one because you got the broth that was easily consumable a little bit of sodium get some carbs and protein back in the system and i just sipped on it and that was perfect and then i went and picked up my my gear and that took a while it wasn't ready i I didn't want to go all the way back in through to get water and everything again and i kind of just wanted to eat i was starting to get hungry but there was a little food truck with smoothies. And so I got a um, mango peach pineapple smoothie because they didn't have my pineapple juice and pizza waiting for me at the finish line. This was the next best thing I could get. There you go. I did follow that up with some pizza once we got back to Folsom. How much pizza did you have? Well, I had a pepperoni pizza. And I didn't quite eat the whole thing. I saved a little bit to have on my flight back the next day. But I did eat pretty much a whole thing that was the same size of like a um, cheese bread pizza kind of thing. So you almost had two whole pizzas. I guess that would equate to almost two pizzas, yes. Which is frankly not that much more than I normally do. But I felt really good. We were actually going to go to a burger place. That's what I really wanted. But they had a big wait. So I had to tackle that for dinner later that night. Was it worth the wait? It was delicious. Uh, what's next for you? Mm. Gosh. Strictly from an athletic standpoint, yes, I know that. I'm not trying to pry into your personal life. <laughs> uh, yeah, that got deep open-ended there for a minute. I, I thought maybe we were going to discuss my family plans. Well, I'm going back to Boston. Uh, I'm going to keep running that race until I get some good weather there. Uh, but also, <laughs> I just love the experience. I, I'm a huge Boston sports fan to begin with. I think the tradition there is unparalleled in running. I love the course. Uh, I love what it makes you do mentally. The whole experience, the vacation is great. The history that you get to experience there. So I'll be back there in April. And I think there's probably going to be a half marathon between now and then because I'd like to, once I take a few days off, because that's really what's next. I've been off since and I'll take a few more days, but my body actually feels pretty good. Legs feel pretty good, surprisingly. Uh, I think I might get myself six, eight weeks here to get a good marathon training, or excuse me, half marathon training block and go after that and actually run a decent time in that race. And I'm hoping in there as well, there's probably either going to be the 5K or 10K at the Tartan Trot in northern suburban Atlanta. Good people of Dunwoody and Sandy Spring put on a race that is fantastic. That race director is a good guy. He is a good guy. Uh, Here's to TJ McGoldrick doing great work. I enjoy that the prizes there are pies, so I hope to show up there as well and do well enough to consume pie. Always a glutton, sometimes a runner. Always a glutton. And you know what? While we are giving some shouts to family and friends right here, I also want to give one to go back to a marathon the same day I ran. My man Miguel over in Spain made his debut in Valencia. Family friend, he stole the love of my life, but we won't get into that. It's still sensitive. 
but he got to run his first marathon on the same day, and I uh, was super excited to hear about that from my friend Josh. So, good work, Miguel. <laughs> what? He didn't really steal the love of my life. That's it's, just your joke. It's kind of an inside joke, okay. but she is uh, the sister of one of my best friends and former roommate who is a wonderful person, and they have a beautiful family. But she lives over in Spain now, moved cool. over there with old Miggy, who is now a marathoner. So you arguably had one of the best buildups of your life for this race. Yep. I was wondering, since you have your running log with you, mm-hmm. if you could give us tangible numbers by week, starting from week one through the race. Uh, I know there's a lot that goes in as far as periodization and pulling workouts at certain times, but just raw numbers. What did each week look like? As far as, as just total, total number of miles per week? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, I could do that for you. It was very consistent. If I go back then, and I'll just start you with the beginning of September and kind of give you the last three months because that's really about what this cycle was. Awesome. So um, starting at the beginning of September, if we just go week by week on how many miles did I run, these would be from Monday to Sunday. So sometimes there's some overlap here. I know that Within seven-day cycles, I did get over 100 miles a couple times, which is not typical for me, but actually went very well and felt really good. And so this was probably on average about 10 or so more miles per week than I had done in the past in my previous best buildup. But uh, my weekly mileage would have gone um, 80, 76, 95, 94 through September, and then in October, I went, I took a day off there, first week of October, which I think was the last day I took off before the race, so wow. about two months. So 82, 93, 94, 93, 94. Wow, October was pretty consistent. Yeah, that was a good month. Stuff. And then November 92 for my last big week. Slight cut downs then starting three weeks out with 81, so didn't take off too much, but about 10 miles. Then for two weeks out, I went down to 66. So really starting about 10 days out was kind of the bigger cutback. The week of the race, I still actually ran 62 if you count the race. So in the six days leading up to the race, I ran about 35. Very cool. You had... Pretty good success at your marathon before this mm-hmm. at Boston. Yeah. Pretty big PB. Coach Mike Smith, who we will always refer to from Northern Arizona. Great coach. Has this quote he talks about when writing his training for his athletes because they have this dynasty of winning yep. national championships. And it's before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Mm-hmm. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. And it's just doing the things you know that work. From comparing this build-up to the one before Boston, do you feel like you chopped wood and carried water, or was there much variation, or what did you learn from that previous build-up that you changed for this one? Yeah, that's great, and it's so true. And I think to spin his quote a little bit, if you want to keep getting better in running, the focus cannot be on what you've already accomplished. It's the opportunities that lie ahead and the work that goes into getting better to do those. I've already thought to myself about what am I going to do to get better for the next time and I don't know how much better I can get and at a certain point age is going to become a barrier for me and and limited amount of speed now I I I don't know if I've shared this on here but I've told this story to folks before I can remember running track in in junior high and the phys ed coach coach Ebright 
when I ran the mile, I, I had eight minutes on the dot in the mile, and it was almost exactly two minutes per lap. That's not really very good, right? If that doesn't say like, oh, you have a future at being a fast track star. He just told me when I came off the track, you were really consistent today. And I, for some reason, I kind of thought that meant I had done it well. He was right. It was consistent. And so as I picked up running later on, it, it became more than just trying to get in shape for other sports that I liked more at the time. I liked baseball and basketball. I, it came to me that one, that consistency was going to be really important and continue chopping the wood. Two, I have limitations to my speed that I better keep working to try to make up for as much as possible. There are other people who may turn over a lot faster than me in any number of distances. It starts to even out a little more as we get to a distance like a marathon for me. But I I didn't want to change too much. I tweaked some things. I I took some things that really worked at Boston and worked in previous builds. I incorporated those. I made some slight changes. I added a little bit of mileage. I think the biggest thing I changed was there were more, uh, I, I was back more on seven day cycles as opposed to nine or 10, just because of my schedule with work and everything else. With that, I didn't try to cram in workouts. I typically did one good workout middle of the week and then a long run that had quality in it on the weekend and then just a lot more miles around that. We're going to have to do a whole episode. We've talked about this on Fartlek running on speed play because I messed around with that a little bit more and did some other things there with alternating paces back and forth that I really enjoyed and I thought helped me. I am self-coached and I coach a lot of other athletes and I build from what I teach them and I take from other coaches and coaches like Canova and V Hill and stuff that's been written by Steve Magnus more recently here. A little bit of Tin Man also, and kind of blend it all together for what I think is appropriate for me. But now my thought is, let's just, again, keep chopping that wood going forward. I know some things I want to tweak based on what I didn't do quite as well here. But the general idea is to keep the ball rolling. It's working, so it doesn't need to be a big dramatic change. You just need to be patient, and that's the advice I would give to everyone. You're not going to show up at your first marathon for the most part, and be brilliant. You're not going to be Emma Bates, probably. But if you take time and you look not at just your training cycle, like I just read through my last three months of miles, but if I look through my last 18 months, I think I would see a lot of really consistent good running. The quick fix is it's temporary, it's short term, it's not the answer to being as good as you can be in the long term. That's all really good stuff. I'm so happy for you. Thanks, buddy. That was a huge performance. We were all freaking out getting your splits. There was a big group work uh, text message group going around. You negative split almost the entire race. Yes. Half PR, two pizzas consumed. Congrats. <laughs> yeah, it is fun to look back and see that every time I hit a 5K mat, my average pace was dropping, which I didn't expect. We but... were freaking out calling each other like, <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm going to ruin it at some point, people are probably thinking. But <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate the sport. It was a lot of fun. And I appreciate the people who are listening who uh, some people have already made comments and emails and stuff, which was really cool. And uh, for a slow old guy, it was pretty darn good. And uh and, you know, now the target becomes what's next? What can I do better? I don't know that I need to run faster than that at Boston to be better, given the differences in course and weather and all that kind of stuff. But something faster, hopefully, down the road. Now I got that auto qualifier time for Berlin, so I'd love to get over there now that I don't have to worry about the lottery and just 
do a great international marathon major as well and maybe take a couple more days and celebrate this though and then get back at it you definitely deserve it thanks my man so i guess i'm gonna wrap it up this week um as always we want to thank all of you listeners this wouldn't be possible if we didn't have people listening uh come in and stop by the store and give travis a big old hug he certainly deserves that thanks for listening i'm ben and for travi we'll see you next week